Would you pray with me? Father, we are gathered here today, and we do a lot in our lives out of routine and out of habit, including coming to church and gathering with your people. We're so grateful to have a sovereign God as you are, a God who ordains everything, and you have brought us here for purposes beyond our knowing, purposes to to build us up as a body, as one body, glorifying you, our head. I pray, God, that you would be with me now, a stutterer, somebody that maybe isn't so eloquent. I take great hope and confidence in your words to Moses. You said, now go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to speak. I'm thankful, Father, that you are passionate for your word and that you always accomplish the purposes for which you send it. It does not return void. And so it's in your spirit guiding me. It's in your spirit uh, guiding our body for all of us to, to hear with ears and to receive your word deep into good soil in our hearts. I pray, God, that you would accomplish that for your name's sake this morning. Amen. So uh, we're studying this morning 1 Corinthians 14, 26-40, and here at Damascus Road we preach through whole books of the Bible because we believe that it isn't just the pleasant, more fluffy, uh, easily understandable or encouraging passages that are useful for teaching and reproving and correcting and training in righteousness. We believe the difficult passages are um, God's Word as well and need to be preached through and need to be covered. And so today's passage, I would say, is not so much on the fluffy side or the uh, rejoice in the Lord always side, but it's, there's some hard words here. Last week, Sam covered the often confusing, even sometimes scary, topic of uh, tongues and prophecy. I told Sam I'd do him one better. I'd cover tongues, prophecy, and submission, which is always a crowd pleaser. So with that, let's get started. Throughout this letter, we've seen that the Corinthian church is a pretty broken, pretty jacked up church. Their values are, in many ways, not of God, but of our flesh, of our own desires. They love the, the, the praise of men and status. They're boasting about who they follow. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Chandler, I follow Driscoll. They're deeply sexual perverse. There's a man even sleeping with his dad's wife. They're willing to take each other to court to get what's theirs, rather than being wronged for the sake of Christ. Their marriage are are woefully broken. They're treating the Lord's table like the early bird special at Anthony's instead of the celebration it's meant to be. And they're even coveting each other's spiritual gifts. And they're either puffed up with pride because they've got the cool, flashy gifts, or they're deflated with despair because they're just the pinky toe on the body of Christ. So we add to this quagmire one more defect and deviation that Sam preached on last week, and that's when they assemble, it's a circus. They're all talking over top of each other, trying to outdo each other with their demonstration of their gifts. They're all too eager to one-up each other and show how uber-spiritual they are. And sadly, they're using the very gifts that God had given them to build up with the effect of actually tearing down. And so it's to this messed up, chaotic, disjointed body that Paul addresses these following words. In our text today, we're going to see that there is an objective for our worship, And there is an order to our worship to help us achieve that objective. And that there is an obstacle to overcome that leads to deeper worship. So let's dive into verse 6 here regarding our objective. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, 
or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. At the outset of our passage today, we are reminded of one of the overriding things, not of just chapters 12 through 14, but really the whole book. This body, again, is so fragmented, so disjointed, and Paul is reminding this body and exhorting them and rebuking them, no, we're followers of Christ and we're part of one body and we are to edify that body, to build that body up. Paul says this against the backdrop of earlier remarks in eleven seventeen. He says, you come together, you assemble, not for better, but for worse. He has to repeat himself over and over because they just don't have that concept that I am my brother's keeper, this is my body, that when I hurt my brother, I'm hurting my own body. Now, if you're like a lot of folks, it's tempting to justify and to define your own life on the basis of what you don't do. Well, I don't, I don't put other people down. I don't fight with my spouse or my significant other. I don't yell at my kids. I've never really offended anyone at church, caused them to go away in a huff. I'm, I'm not like those people. So we define ourselves by what we don't do. I told Ethan I was going to share this this morning. So uh, there are times when our seven-year-old will get into such a, a nasty attitude. And Caleb, our other son, they're building Legos together maybe, build this little toy car or whatever, and say, hey, brother, what do you, what do you think of my car? And Ethan will just be silent. And I'm nearby, and in that silence I say, hey, Ethan, you're... Your brother said something to you. Would you respond, please? Ethan just sometimes will just be there with a scowl, just looking and being silent. He says, I don't want to say anything because what I'm thinking of isn't nice. And we're all taught that as kids, right? And there's some truth to that. There's some beauty. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, as all of us are, those who trust in him, it's not enough not to tear down. We can't define ourselves just by what we don't do. Paul makes it clear. We are to build up. It's not enough to say, I don't fight with my spouse. I don't yell at my kids. I don't argue with my neighbor over the dog poop that he leaves in my yard. God has called us to be builders, not just not terror downers. The thing is, I don't think a lot of us as Christians are even necessarily, or the Corinthians rather, were necessarily trying to tear down their fellow believers. I think they were just so set on pursuing what they had defined was spiritual deeply spiritual. And so they were pursuing these gifts with their fullest extent, and they'd squeezed out all bandwidth in their hearts and minds to be considering what their brother or sister might need or how they might build that brother or sister up. Oftentimes that subtle narcissism or self-focus that we're all plagued with through our fallen nature, it isn't so evident to us because, like the Corinthians, they're pursuing gifts of God. It's good, right? Well, we pursue, we're not maybe as given to ecstatic, expressive gifts of the Spirit, but we pursue other good things, maybe like study, endless book reading, or podcasting, or or Bible studies. Many of us pursue our spiritual growth. We have said, to know God is to know all that I can know about theology. And so we pursue it like a monk in a vacuum, apart from community. We think that all we can learn, or that's worth learning, can be read and gained and ascertained through study. And the reality is that we'll never reach our deepest level of spiritual maturity in that ivory tower of study. That's, I think, where we, again, as a Reformed body, find ourselves most inclined to go, to pursue knowing God. 
It's when we allow our study, our theology, our orthodoxy, our right thinking about God to be joined with our orthopraxy, our right living for God, that we become most like Jesus. There's a cheesy cliche out there, but like most cliches, there's kernels of truth to that, and that's why they have longevity. And it's that if God can get it through you, he'll get it to you. And Carly will attest to this. When I was just more so attending and hanging out in church, I didn't care so much about the things of God. I wasn't growing. But as soon as I started to take on deeper levels of, of being a serv- in service here at, at our body or in uh, leadership, my desire to study his word and to pursue knowing him and my grasp and understanding, actually holding on to those things and seeing them in new and deeper lights, almost exponentially grew. And conversely, I believe that if we're not focused on building others up, if our study is just for the sake of study, it's only going to yield a bunch of intellectual knowledge. And it'll never leave our head and move down into our hearts. So I wrap up this thought simply by asking you, where and how are you building up the bride? As Chris mentioned, I told him after the first song, when he came down to the booth, after someone came to relieve him, I said, thank you for giving me a sermon illustration. We have plenty of needs. Now that we are two campuses, one church across two hills, we still have plenty of needs in Kids Road, in Roadies, in brewing the coffee and cleaning up the communion supplies at the end of service today. So many needs that are still remaining to be filled, things that are still being left undone. And so other people that maybe should be focusing their attention elsewhere, like Chris doing slides this morning, are having to cover there. So I'm Asking you, where are you serving the body of Christ? Where are you plugging in to build up your brothers and your sisters? And in addition to that, beyond serving here at the church, whose lives are you investing in? Who are you mindful of that your study just doesn't terminate with you? That was the whole purpose of us pursuing the multiply study, was that we would get this mindset that it's not, I'm not just pursuing God and studying his word so that I can get more knowledge myself. This is meant to multiply. This is meant to pass on. So who are you investing in? Whose lives? Who are you seeking to love on and to build up in the knowledge of Christ? If no one is on that list, if you can't point to a relationship where you are pursuing that person, you're giving them phone calls, you're sending them text messages, you're checking on them, you're meeting for coffee, to not just have good fellowship, which is important, but to even see where they're at in life with God then maybe as I ask that question, faces that do come to mind, who aren't, you're not intentionally pursuing them yet, but maybe those are the people that God wants you to reach out to and to begin to pursue and to begin to be intentional about building them up. For all the ways that the Corinthians fail as a body, um, there is a brokenness within, uh, there's a beauty rather, a nugget of beauty within all their brokenness. Notice how Paul says that when they gather in verse 26, when you, when you come together, Someone has a psalm, someone has a hymn, someone has a revelation. They're coming to service prepared. They're not just spectators. They're not just observers, consumers. They're participants. They're contributors. They're coming prepared. Two weekends ago, Ken Hughes and Brian McGill and myself joined about 10,000 plus other folks and rode our bicycles from UW in Seattle down to, to Portland. Had a great time doing that. It's about 204 miles. I've done that ride once before in 2009, and I was starting to feel some growth in the midsection, and my 
commitment to myself to, Nate, you just got to exercise more. got to eat less. wasn't working. I wasn't getting traction. And so I knew I needed a bigger commitment. I knew I, knew, I knew I needed to commit to the body. I knew I needed guys that would hold me accountable to it. So that's why I said when they brought up the idea of, hey, what about the STP? I said, yeah, I, I need to do that. I knew it would be a commitment, but I, I wanted something that would uh, actually help me get into better shape. So the ride was July 13th and 14th, again, just a couple weeks ago. Guess what? We prepared for it. And we didn't just start preparing for it the week before. We actually started in, I think, February or March, maybe even earlier. It felt like it was cold enough to be more like December. I'll tell you what, having committed to do the ride, a significant part of my motivation in February, when it's pouring down rain, it's about 38 degrees outside, and who knows what the wind chill is doing to things, a significant part of my motivation, I would have, if it were just me, said, nah, not today. We'll wait another month. But knowing that those guys were out there riding, and not just that they were out there that day, but we had agreed at the beginning of this trip that this was a ride not about who's going to get the best time. It's not a race. It's a ride. We agreed this is about fellowship. We wanted to enjoy each other and build each other up in Christ on that ride and just be together, have that experience together. And I didn't want to be that guy. They'd put in all their training, and I'd said, ah, not today. I'm just going to sit on my couch, take it easy, stay where it's warm and cozy. I don't want to be that guy that they were having to wait up for when they were ready to go because they had trained, they had prepared, but they had to wait up for me. God hasn't called you or me to be spectators here at DRC. He's called you to be a participant, an active member of the body. Your body needs you as much as you need the body And part of that, though, being an active member, is preparing. When we come on Sunday mornings, what time did you go to bed last night? Did you crack open God's Word? Did you maybe look at some scripture or the scripture we're going to preach through today and just get your heart ready to come to this space with this body to worship the King? Or did you stay up to 11.30 or 12 watching a movie, just lounging? Did you roll into church this morning? just ready to see what would happen, thinking about, yeah, I can't wait till later, we have a barbecue. Have you prepared yourself? Don't just spectate, don't just consume. Prepare yourself to build up the body. So if our objective as we worship God is to build up our body, we need some order. We need some structure. So Paul writes concerning tongues and prophecy, starting in verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what's said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I don't know if you've ever worshipped at a charismatic body. If you haven't, or if, you have, if you're a new believer, or you've never been in a church, this is not a charismatic body, just to be clear. It can get kind of wild. I, I, in college, was exploring. Grew up Lutheran Brethren, which was more kind of tight-laced, and uh, through college just wanted to see what was out there in the body of Christ. And so um, spent plenty of time in charismatic bodies. And it gets crazy sometimes when people are babbling in tongues and people are saying, Thus says the Lord, it's easy to walk out of there and just want to toss the baby out with the bathwater altogether and just say, not going to let the Spirit speak or don't want to have any part of that. 
We can't forget, though, that tongues and prophecy, they are a gift from God. And like any gift, it's not the gift that's the problem. It's our hearts. It's kind of like that eight-year-old kid of yours or your nephew at Christmas time. They get a gift for Christmas. And that's the gift they've been wanting all along. And that's the gift they've been pursuing and maybe looking in the catalog or online for. And they can't stop playing with that gift. And they sleep with that gift. And if you try to take that gift away from them, they're nasty. They're monsters. The gift isn't the problem. It's the heart of that child. The child needs some boundaries, some structure, some order. So they see, yes, this is a gift. Yes, this is a blessing. But not to the effect that it's meant to tear down your family, your body around you. This church is only about two or three years old. Paul founded it when he, uh, a few years prior. And it's almost as though this church, like a, a newborn horse, never learned to walk. If you ever watch those Nova videos, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, and the, the horse just kind of, you know, gangly when it comes out, doesn't know how to walk. But it learns to soon enough. But where foals, which is a baby horse for you city folk, know what to do instinctually, it happens in a matter of hours, matter of days. They're, they're walking, they're running, they're galloping. They look, they mature rapidly. Whereas they do that instinctually and naturally. What's natural for the Corinthians is to begin to disintegrate even further and to tear each other apart even more. So Paul adds some bracing, as it were, some structures around their legs so they can learn to walk and to, to function as a body. He gives three main restrictions. He says, only two or three at most in the whole gathering for that one Sunday. Only two or three speakers. And let them speak one at a time. Enough of this trying to outdo each other louder, longer, crazier. Just one at a time. And let that tongue be interpreted. And if there isn't someone there to interpret it, keep it to yourself. Speak to God with it, but not audibly for the whole body. And Paul gives them some very similar restrictions regarding prophecy. Again, only two or three in a gathering. And again, only one at a time, not at the same time with just chaos and confusion reigning. And then he says those prophecies, they don't stand on themselves. They're to be weighed against Scripture. And notice with these guidelines and restrictions that both speaking in a tongue and prophesying, they can be controlled. Which again, if you've been to a charismatic gathering, you would think that just people can't control it. It's just a runaway freight train. you just got to let go and let God. But clearly we see that's not the case. Paul says the spirit of each prophet is subject to the prophet. It's not the other way around that I, I can't help it, I'm just moved. The spirit, or the prophet rather, has control. He knows what's going on. He knows, wait a minute, there's someone else speaking right now. I need to wait to share my tongue, my prophecy. I think it'd be helpful for a moment here to pause and talk about what prophecy is and isn't under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, we had prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah and whatever they spoke was authoritative. It was accurately the word of God. It's almost as God had put his mouthpiece up to them and they were the, the megaphone declaring that. God's hand and his spirit were on them in such a way that they, will, they were able to accurately and authoritatively speak for him. So we read in Hebrews 1, 1, that long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But we know that's not the case. That when we see prophet here in the New Testament, that's not the same case as Old Testament prophet. And I think it's helpful to clarify because Paul here in the letter of the Corinthians says that these prophecies need to be weighed. And I guarantee you that no Israelite at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments says, hey Mo, that's, that's an interesting word you got there, but I'm thinking it's probably more like seven commandments, not ten. 
Good job, though. And nice glow, by the way. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. No, you see, the, the New Covenant equivalent of what the Old Testament prophet was was actually the apostle. They were the ones who spoke with authority and clarity and accuracy. Uh, so folks like Paul or Peter, it's their words and their writing that rises to that same level of being directly inspired by God. New Covenant prophecy, actually, it lacks that same precision or authority. Instead, it's more of a, a sudden impression from God on the heart or the mind. And that's why we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Pastor and theologian D.A. Carson describes prophecy this way. He says, In common church life, prophecy was recognized to be spirit-prompted utterance, but with no guarantee of divine authority in every detail, and therefore not only uh, in need of evaluation, as Paul tells them to do in verse 29 there, but necessarily inferior the deposit of truth represented by the Apostle Paul. So that's just a contrast of, of uh, what New Covenant prophecy looks like versus what we see in the Old Testament. And what that might actually look like is something as simple as, so I feel God, or I think he's saying this, that, or the other thing. It's not a thus says the Lord where you feel, how do I weigh that? If thus says the Lord, how am I supposed to evaluate or judge that. In reading uh, Grudem, Wayne Grudem, and, and finding out, learning more about what the contrast between the new and old was, he described an example where a man, brand new to a church, walks into the church, sits in the pew, he's, he's just in the corner, he's hidden, and somebody in the body, where prophecy was allowed and encouraged and done in an orderly fashion, says, I don't know, but I feel like God is saying, that there's a, in this room, there's a man who left his wife this morning and his family, and he needs to go back to them today. And that man responded, and the church knew it. And this wasn't because they had been talking about, this was a brand new person to the church. I mean, can you imagine if that happened in this body, and someone was cut to the heart and convicted of sin? Of course, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 14, we would all fall on our faces and say, surely God is in this place. So that's as as kind of odd and scary as that might sound, that's what we're talking about here with prophecy. While it's hard to say exactly who is called upon and qualified to publicly weigh these prophecies, the big picture idea is that no matter how trustworthy that person is, whether they're an elder, or the Bible study leader, uber spiritual, whoever it is, we don't take their word for it. We weigh whatever is prophesied. We test the spirits and the prophecy against Scripture itself. And that's the very uh, same thing we see the Bereans doing in Acts 17, and they're praised. For even with the Apostle Paul and his words, they're taking what Paul says and saying, now hold on here, Paul. Okay, good. Comparing it, and they're praised for that. Now at this point, after this big discussion on tongues and prophecy, you might be thinking, well, that was a big waste of time since, I don't know if you've noticed, Nate, but our gatherings aren't exactly marked by a bunch of uh, out-of-control tongue-speaking and prophesying. Not so fast. Perhaps... It's not an issue with us, this, these urges. No, hold on, you don't get to prophesy. We've actually had three. Next time, okay, thank you. Perhaps that's not an issue for us, not because we are concerned about the honor of God and having order and service. Perhaps we've gone too far the other direction. As Sam referenced last week, uh, referencing 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul warns them uh, that in a warning that's much more fitting for our body. He says, 
Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. There's something to be said for exuberance in our worship to God. It'd be okay with me if there was a few more of us who were wanting to put our hands up when we were singing to God. Why do our favorite sports teams get exceedingly more celebration and outward demonstration of um, our excitement than God, the living God, does? See, a lot of times we confuse and I think we misinterpret our orderliness as a sign of respect and honor for God when really, I think it's a sign sometimes that we actually fear man more than we fear God. We're more concerned with what our neighbor next to us is going to think of us if we put our hand up or if we even say, I feel like God wants me to encourage you with this. You're going to think I'm a freak. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put myself out there. And so we're concerned more with what man thinks than God does a lot of times. 2 Samuel 6, 20-23 records this of David. The ark has returned to Jerusalem, and David is thrilled. The ark represented in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the, the very presence of God, and it was returning to Jerusalem. And so David returned to bless his household. He's just gone on this big celebration in the city, dancing, sort of in his underwear, in a, in a linen ephod, as it were. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, and covering himself today before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to her, to Michael, his wife, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. David, as we see here, one more example, was a man after God's own heart. He cared more about his God and what his God thought of him than what other people. And I'm not encouraging us to break out the tambourines and get your banners out and start waving them here. Just asking you to consider, in light of David and his worship of God, that maybe the Corinthian problem isn't so much our problem, we just can't shut up. Maybe the problem is that we're quenching the spirit. We're inclined to despise and to squelch and quench any upwelling of emotion or expression in response to the grace of God poured out in our lives. Be careful that you're not more concerned with what Michael thinks than with what God thinks of you. Amen. So now we come to an obstacle to worship. We've covered what our objective is. That's the building up. And we've covered that uh, the order that God has laid out for us helps for the building up. And now we come to that obstacle. Verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, if you're paying attention to the last few chapters here, it would seem that Paul is contradicting himself, since back in 11.5, he said that women could pray and prophesy. Whenever we come to apparent contradictions in Scripture, it's really tempting to get creative, to explain, wait a minute, how do these two fit together? They can pray and prophesy, they're supposed to be silent. That kind of seems like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, Paul. How does that work? Some have even gone so far as to say, well, you know what? Actually, uh, the people, the scribes, uh, later on, actually just wrote these verses in. They thought, mm, I have an idea. I'll add to Scripture. I'm going to write these in the margins. The problem with that view is that 
with the earliest manuscripts we have, these verses are in there. It's not that we have this pattern of no, three, no chapter, no verse 33 and, or 34 and 35, and all of a sudden they show up. So we have to deal with the verses head on. It's either, easy to read a passage like this and think that Paul is completely brutish, and repressive, he's backwards, looking from our 21st century perspective back on the 1st century. It would be easy to make that error in judgment. The fact is that with the Greek ecclesia, which is the word we have in our Bibles for church, and that was the gathering of the citizens for a public meeting or a political meeting. In those gatherings, in the Greek culture, the women weren't allowed to speak at all. Zip, mum. And so in contrast, we have the Christian ecclesia, the Christian gathering, the Christian church, and women are actually encouraged and invited to pray and to prophesy. So the reality is, as it always does, despite our culture's views otherwise, the gospel actually liberated women from certain cultural limitations. And with that in view, we have a a new appreciation, I think, for this text. It's hard to fully reconstruct the situation that Paul is addressing with this letter. Some commentators believe that the problem was that after a husband stood up to prophesy, the wife was saying, oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what about last night at home, huh? And maybe not showing the kind of respect that she should her husband and therefore bringing shame and dishonor. I'm inclined to think that two other things are going on. First, it's likely that, unlike today, where husbands and wives are sitting together, that the women and the men were segregated. They were patterned in their worship gathering after the way the Jews gathered for worship. And so if a a wife had a question, her husband was across the other side of the room, and that left her to either talk and speak across the room, which could have happened, or maybe more likely to start whispering to the the gal next to her. what What did he mean by that? And they start... A side conversation. Maybe there's lots of side conversations going on, which obviously would lead to disorder. Thank you, by the way, for not having little side conversations out there. (laughs) And secondly, this passage comes right after the section on the weighing of prophecy. It's very possible uh, that the women were taking their newfound freedoms that they had in the gospel, in the church, glad to be freed from just the restrictions they had in the Greek culture, and they might have been taking those freedoms too far. Yes, women were invited to to publicly pray and to prophesy, but the weighing of those prophecies, in terms of guarding the purity of the church's doctrine, of course, if someone were to stand up in our body and to say, I feel like God is saying, he's put it on my heart, of course you all need to weigh that with what you know of God's word. But it's up to the elders, to the male leaders, uh, the male elders in the church, to guard the doctrine of the church, to make sure it doesn't veer off the tracks. And so maybe that's what Paul is addressing here with this, that there are role distinctions. It would be a tough case, perhaps, to to make this case, but the fact is Paul couldn't be more clear than when he says in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, "I, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Whatever the exact situation is, the big idea here is that Paul reminds the Corinthians that God has established both in the family itself and also in the family of God, the church, prescribed roles based on our being male and female. These roles are not equal, but they're also not inferior. They're complementary. They're God-designed. They're God-ordained from the beginning of creation. And that's why we read this in Genesis 2. And that's likely the, Paul, the passage that Paul is referencing when he says, as the law says, he's likely referencing 
the creation order of, of Genesis 2. When we try to buck and throw off and ignore God's established order for the family and for the church because we find it objectionable, it doesn't fit with our sensibilities, we look like idiots to the culture, we reject God's peace and we invite a world and a heap of confusion. And God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So men, husbands, you're not off the hook, though. You never demand submission, of course. I like how the NASB translates this. It says, let a woman be subject, or let a wife be subject. It's an invitation. It's not a demand we put out there. But notice the scripture says, let them ask their husbands at home. When was the last time your wife asked you a question? about the things of God. And if she isn't asking you questions about those things, why is that? Does she see a hunger in you to know God, to pursue Him? Or does she think she stands a better shot of getting the score from the M's game last night than to get your take on a a passage of Scripture or a piece of theology? Men, you need to be able to lead your wives in the pursuit of God. That's a heavy burden. I know it can be terrifying. But be encouraged. It doesn't mean you need to know it all. It just means you need to take the initiative and the leadership of your home. You don't have to be a know-it-all or a theologian. You just need to have a humble heart that says, I don't know exactly what's meant up by that. Let's, let's study that together. Or let me ask an elder. Or let me study it for myself and, and get a book. Just take the initiative. Take the lead. On you. God has put it on you to be shepherding and leading your family. We move on to verse 36 and following. Or was it from you the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it's reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone doesn't recognize this, he's not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The Corinthians, with all their expressions of gifts of the Spirit, they're high on themselves. They're pompous. They're that pompous teenager that all of you and I were when we were teens. Mom has no clue what's going on. Dad is so out of it. Man, they don't even have an idea of how this really works. I know so much better. By God's grace, most of us in our early 20s, mom and dad, you can nod, we start to realize, oh, wait a minute, mom and dad did know a thing or two, and wow, they sacrificed immensely. And so Paul is the parent here who sees his teen child, the Corinthians, setting themselves up for a world of hurt, and he sees that they're just so blinded with their pride over these newfound gifts that they're oh, so close to God. They know what's going on. They're the spiritual elite. And so he asked them these two rhetorical questions to slap the narcissism out of them, to draw them, to draw a thick line in the sand, rather. He tells them that if they think they are so close to God, if they think they know his heart, then they ought to be able to recognize that the words he's writing to them, those are of God, from God. They bear his authority. He's saying the gospel didn't come from you, Corinthians. The gospel came to you. You received it. It's not yours to reinterpret or to reimagine the way that fits your desires, your cultural situation. That's largely what he told them back in chapter 4, verse 26. He said, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, to regard Scripture, to regard the apostles' teaching, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I don't know if the Corinthians would have had access to some sort of rudimentary form of the gospel of Jesus' sayings yet at this time, but I know we do. And Jesus has some stern, astonishing, terrifying words for us, recorded in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Jesus speaking, On that day you will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We see in Matthew here that it's very, very possible to do a lot of seemingly spiritual, outwardly spiritual things, but to not even know Jesus, and thus to not be recognized by him. It would seem these folks in Matthew weren't even aware how far they had drifted from God. Clearly at some point they'd been close enough to see what prophecy looks like and and demons being cast out, but they drifted so far apart. And that drifting starts with us as well. As soon as we start to downplay, degrade, and even just maybe ditch altogether the authority of Scripture in our lives. And we don't have any regard for what our church fathers have done in centuries past. That's what Paul references there. He says, Corinthians, look, as in all the other churches of God, this is how it is. Paul has a lot of challenging words to say today about submission, and they weren't just about the roles that we find ourselves in in virtue of our genders. I don't know if you're paying attention or if you caught it, but over and over, this this whole passage this morning has actually been about submission. He's called the person with the uninterpreted tongue to be quiet, to submit. He's called the prophet, who's maybe the fourth prophet for the day, or maybe he's the first one and someone else is waiting in line. He's called them to be silent, to submit to the body. He's called wives to submit to their husbands. And now he's calling the church to submit to the authority of Scripture. I would suggest to you that the heart of submission, like tongues, like prophecy, it's a gift from God. But it's an even greater gift because this gift, this gift of submission, it always results when it's done in a godly manner in the building up of the body. And that is our objective in worship, to see Christ glorified as his body is built up. And one big thing to remember about submission, we're not looking to Lucille Ball, we're not looking to June Cleaver, we're not looking to Marge Simpson for our picture, our understanding of what submission is. We're not even, in fact, looking at a woman for that picture. We're looking at a man, actually. And not just any man, we're looking at the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. If anyone had reason to claim equality and to grasp egalitarianism and say, no, I got my own. I'm not submitting. It's Jesus. And instead, we know from Scripture, he does not do that. He submits himself to the Father who is worthy of that submission. But more than that, not just to the Father, he submits himself to broken, sinful, rebellious, tyrannous, humanity, to be spit upon, to be mocked, to be murdered. Now, we are not worthy of that submission, but he submitted because he loves 
the Father, and that was the Father's will, and He loves us. And because of His submission, this is the Gospel for you, church, His joyful enduring of the cross, all of us who put our trust in Him today have and have been born again, we don't just have a list of do's and don'ts. We need to submit to the body, submit to our husbands, submit to Scripture. Those aren't just external commands that He's put upon us. If we are His, we're trusting in Him, He's given us a new spirit inside of us who not only equips us with His wonderful outward manifestations, prophecy, tongues, but more importantly, with an inward disposition that wants to respond to His lavish grace poured out on us by abstaining from whatever is not helpful for the body or pursuing whatever would be helpful to the building up of the body. That's the gospel good news this morning, church. We have a spirit, the spirit of the living God living inside of us. And there's even more to that gospel good news because you and I, we're broken still. We inevitably fail at this. I don't want to submit to what the elders say. I don't want to submit to what my spouse, my husband says. I don't want to submit to the word of God when it cuts my heart as I'm reading it. I want to just stuff that down. We fail at this. We don't use our gifts that God has given us as we ought out of apathy. Or we do use them and it's to exalt ourselves and to lift ourselves up. Again, we fail. Hear God's words spoken over you and over me. Spoken by Paul out of the first chapter. We've spent months now going through this letter to the Corinthians and we've seen how jacked up and broken they are. And so when I was preparing and read this in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, my heart stopped. I was blown away. Paul says, 4 through 9 verses, I give thanks to my God always for you because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is it. Who will sustain you? Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless. Guiltless when you fail. He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, even when we are faithless, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is my hope. For me, that's my hope for you this morning, that he has a high calling for us, but his, his spirit supplies the power we need, and his blood and his grace supply the covering and the freedom and the forgiveness that we need. Let's pray.